You can turn with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4. I'll be covering chapters 4 and 5 this morning. When I was seven years old, a new game show came on TV. You've probably heard of it. It's called Price is Right. It's hosted by Bob Barker for 35 years. Some of, you, some of you may not know Price is Right. You probably know Bob Barker from his role in Happy Gilmore. He's a little more familiar to you in that. Uh, I remember as a kid watching this show, and honestly, I wasn't that intrigued really by guessing the price of milk or sugar or whatever. I didn't really care. I wasn't paying for it, so it didn't matter. But what I liked was when a contestant got to pick a door. Right? You, you get to choose. You want what's behind door number one, door number two, or door number three. The contestant would choose that door, and it might be a, a good prize, it might be awesome, or it might be just really stinky, whatever, you know. But then they'd have a choice to pick the next door. And I always thought, why wouldn't you, right? Pick the next door. This is a game show after all, right? You're not intending that you'll get your whole retirement account from this or retire because you're on prices, right? So choose the next door. Aren't you curious? Don't you want to know what's behind door number two and door number three? That's what makes life exciting, right? Looking for more, looking for that next thing. In John chapter, Revelation chapter 4, Jesus literally says to John, do you want to see what's behind the next door? John, do you want to know what's behind door number two? Remember, John knew Jesus probably better than any person who had lived on earth. He was described as the beloved disciple. He had walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus. For three years, he had slept out under the stars with Jesus and shared meals with Jesus. He'd heard Jesus teach and preach and heal. He'd been with Jesus at that last supper. He had been the one who was closest to Jesus, reclining on Jesus' breast. The beloved disciple saw Jesus crucified. He saw Jesus raised from the dead. But when he went behind that first door and he was transported by the Spirit into the presence of God and he saw Jesus glorified for the first time, it absolutely stunned him. It was as if he had never known Jesus before and it left him wanting more of Jesus. Do you want more of Jesus? Some of you probably walked with Jesus for a long time. Maybe a year or two, maybe 10, 15, maybe 30 years or more. You may have walked with Jesus so long, but isn't there something inside of you that says, I just, I want more. I want to, I want to know what's behind that next door. My prayer for you this week, my prayer for me this week, is that we would be discontent. We'd be genuinely discontent with what we have, and we would be left wanting more of Jesus So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to go with John behind door number two in Revelation chapter four, beginning in verse one. After these things, John writes, I looked and behold, there was another door standing open in heaven and the first voice, which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here, John, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Uh, Revelation 4 and 5 are actually uh, one unit. They go together. They are a description of the very throne room of God. And what you will notice as we get into this passage is that all of heaven is preoccupied with the one sitting on the throne. All of heaven is completely fixated on the worship of God. And my in-laws are gardeners. They're excellent gardeners. You go and see their yard. It's always uh, immaculately groomed. My father-in-law 
uh, fertilizes the yard multiple times throughout the year at the appropriate times. He's got plantings all around that are, are beautiful. There, there are no weeds in his garden. He's got trees specifically that he's planted of different species. It's, it's a wonderful thing. It's beautiful. And when I say they're, they're gardeners, uh, my mother-in-law and father-in-law were not just members of the Tulsa Iris Society. My father-in-law was the president of the Tulsa Iris Society, right? So they're really into it. Now, I, on the other hand, I'm not. I'm, I've never won Yard of the Month in my neighborhood. Uh, I, I'm not even, not even broken into the top ten. I don't in, really enjoy it that much. I'm not good at it. Uh, my, my gardens, if you can call that, my, my flower beds are um, they're actually weeds, which, by which I, don't, I mean that there are weeds in them. They are weeds, right? A couple years ago, everything got a little overgrown, so I tore out all the shrubs with the intention of replanting, and then I never did. And so if you come to my yard, <laughs> you look at the front, and you see weeds, except for this, this one lone crepe myrtle tree, sadly, you know, reaching out uh, amongst all the weeds that are <laughs> threatening to kill it. I, I'm not good at it. So, you know, when my father-in-law and mother-in-law come, I usually get advice on the yard. And one of my father-in-law, he's told me this many times. He probably doesn't realize that he's told me many times, but he has told me many times. He said, you know what you need? Is you need a focal point, right? So you, those of you who are gardeners know what I'm talking about. I never knew. You need a focal point, he will say. His yard has focal points. So he says you need something that draws in your attention. And if you go to his yard, it's like you're, you're moving through this beautiful thematic garden. You know, as you move from focal point to focal point. I have a focal point. It's weeds. This is my focal point. I call it, it's called, I looked it up online. It's called xeriscaping. It's where you kind of blend in <laughs> to the natural environment. He just doesn't get that. You need a focal point so you're not distracted. It draws your attention in. In heaven, there is a focal point. It is the throne. The throne is the focal point. And as you read this passage, you will observe that everything is described in its relationship or proximity to the throne. Before the throne, around the throne, near the throne, out from the throne. But there's just one who is on the throne. And that's God the Father. John describes him in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3. It says, And he who was sitting was something like a jasper stone or or a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Whenever John gets near to the glory of God, he has a hard time even finding the words. In fact, there are actually four descriptions in the Bible. The throne room of God. There is... Uh, Daniel chapter 7, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, and here in Revelation 4. And all of these men struggle to describe what they see of the glory of God. But there are similarities in each of their descriptions. I want you to hold your place in Revelation. Turn back with me to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1, and verse 26. Ezekiel 1, verse 26. So here pages are still turning. It's, it's 839 in my Bible, if that helps. Or there's you know, thing, table of contents, Ezekiel. We don't have quiet times in Ezekiel very often, but we should. All right? Ezekiel chapter 1, there's a vision of the very throne room of God, one of the few in the entire Bible. Chapter 1, verse 26. Ezekiel writes, Now above the expanse that was over the heads of the creatures... There was something something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. 
Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something glowing like metal that looked like fire all around it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. There was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Surrounding the throne, in Ezekiel's description, and in John's description, is, is something so beautiful, all he can say is it, it looks like a, a rainbow. It's, it's beautiful in appearance. When you see a rainbow in Scripture, what comes to your mind? What, what should come to your mind? Noah, the flood, right? We should think Noah and the flood. That's the first rainbow that we saw ever history of the world, we should be reminded of the faithfulness of God to his promises. Remember in Noah's day, God looked out over all of creation, and he looks and he looks and he looks, and he can find no one righteous. Humanity has degenerated morally so badly that he looks and he can find Noah, no one except for Noah. He finds Noah and he says, finally, there's one. There's one righteous man. Through him I will begin again to rebuild humanity. Noah builds an ark. God puts him in the ark. The floods come and destroy all of humanity. And Noah lands and he worships God. And God says, I want you to look in the sky. You see that rainbow? That rainbow is a reminder that I will never again destroy all of humanity with a flood. In other words, Noah, my intention from the Garden of Eden has always been that I would rule and reign over all of creation through men and women. That's my plan. And mankind's sin and mankind's failure cannot disrupt my plan. I will do it. In fact, Noah, all you have to do is look up on, a, on a, a day after the rain and you see the rainbow in the midst of the clouds and you will be reminded that I always keep my promises. I am faithful. Now, why is that significant? John is about to have revealed to him chapter after chapter after chapter of destruction of the earth. And we said... Revelation 6 through 19 is all about God judging sinful humanity again. But before God judges sinful humanity, he reminds John, I'm faithful to my promises. John, my plan in Genesis chapter 1, and even after the fall in Genesis 3 and Genesis 9 with Noah and Psalm chapter 8, Revelation chapter 4, in my throne room there's a symbol of my faithfulness. I will never break my promise. So there's a rainbow around the throne of God. Read with me verse 22. Ezekiel 1. It says, Now over the heads of the living beings there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. Turn back to the book of Revelation again, chapter 4, verse 5. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder There were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. There's a throne. The throne is in the center. Surrounding the throne, there is the the, the beauty beauty and radiance of, of a rainbow. That is, all of light is there and radiating out from God. And below God's feet, there is a sea of of glass. It's it's like crystal. It's so clear. It could be water, but it seems so firm and so hard and so pure. It's described as crystal or a sapphire by the people in Moses' day. Remember, Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders were called up to have communion with God, to have fellowship with God. 
And when they were called up, this is how they described it. Exodus chapter 24. Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Under the feet of God, it's a pavement. It's like sapphire. It's like crystal. It's so vast that all we can describe it as is, is an ocean, a sea. What are they doing? Well, they're looking up into the home of God. They're looking up into the home of God, which is also the throne room of God. This is the place from which God governs. It is also a tabernacle or a temple because God is worshipped in this place. In fact, Moses was called up and he didn't go into heaven itself, but he was given a vision of heaven. And God said, write it down because I want you to reproduce a copy of it on earth. It's called the tabernacle. It's a vision, it's an image of the home of God, of of the temple of God where he's worshipped, of the throne of God. That was the mercy seat and the ark and the cherubim who would reach over. And in heaven, what's going on? Well, all of creation is worshipping God. God alone is on the throne, but God is not alone. Read with me in chapter 4 and verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments, and golden crowns were on their head. There are 24 elders around the throne of God, 24 extra thrones. Uh, Who are these men? Uh, You know, we don't know for certain. There's a lot of speculation. Uh, I think the best explanation is that these are the 12 apostles of the original church. And then 12 representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, 12 believers under the new covenant, 12 believers from under the Old Covenant, that is the people of God under the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, coming together in the presence of God. What's important is not so much who they are, but what they're doing. Read with me in verse 10. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they will worship him who lives forever and ever, and they will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Because you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and they were created. What are the elders doing? They're worshiping. But the elders are not alone. There are also four living creatures who are before the throne. Read with me in verse 6. In the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature had the face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Now, one of the questions that I'm asked most frequently by children is, will there be animals in heaven? The answer is yes. Okay, there you go. Right there. There are some animals that are in heaven. And, you know, kids, I I need to tell you that um, nobody knows exactly what these animals are. You have theologians, adults, right, who write page after page after page trying to explain who they are. Um, Some say they're angels. But in a little while, John is going to see angels, and he's going to describe those angels, and you know how... What he calls those angels? He calls them angels, right? So these are not, I don't think, angels. These are living creatures. Are there animals in heaven? Yes, there are. Will the animals in heaven talk? Well, some of them will. Okay, that's kind of fun, isn't it, kids? Some of them will. These creatures talk. Now, I'm not telling you that your cat will be in heaven and talk to you. I'm not saying that, so don't go home and tell your parents. Pastor Brian said that Kitty's coming with me to heaven and he's going to talk to me. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there will be some animals, at least in heaven. They will talk. What are they? I don't know what these creatures are. I've never seen anything like it on earth. 
But again, what's important is not what they are. What's important is what are they doing? Verse 8. The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders will join in. They will fall down before the throne. And they will worship him who lives forever and ever. They will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things. Because of your will they existed and they were created. Heaven is occupied with worship. The 24 elders, the four living creatures, they're worshiping God for who he is. He's holy. He's almighty. He's powerful. He's eternal. He was, he is, he is to come. The elders join in and they worship God because he's, he's powerful in creation. He's the only self-existent one and he sustains all things. But the 24 elders and the four living creatures are not alone. There are innumerable angels before the throne. Turn to chapter 5 and verse 11. Then I looked again and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. What's the largest number you can imagine? That's what this number is in Greek. In in Greek, this is the largest number that they understood or could imagine at this point in time. And John says, what I looked out and saw was biggest number times biggest number plus biggest number plus biggest number. That is just... Just countless. I saw angel after angel after angel after angel after angel. And they were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne, that is the Father, and to the Lamb, that is the Son, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying over and over and over again, Amen, Amen, Amen. And the elders joined in again and they fell down and worshipped. Men and women, heaven is a really busy place. Okay, there's a lot going on in heaven. But all of it is centered around the throne of God and it's focused upon the worship of God. All of heaven is preoccupied with God. All of heaven is preoccupied with worship. Remember when the elders looked up with Moses and Aaron, they looked up and what did they see? They saw a sea of crystal or sapphire. It's like glass. And it's below the feet of God. They were looking into the house of God. They were looking up at the throne of God. In other words, God had come down, but when God came down, God brought his throne with him, right? God never leaves his throne. Wherever God goes, he is on his throne. The image that Ezekiel had of these four living creatures, they had wheels all around them. They were almost like gyroscopes. They could move any direction. And apparently what they did is they bore up the throne of God. So when God wanted to move and go anywhere, God was carried on his throne. God never leaves his throne, men and women. He's always on his throne. Elders looked up to worship. They were looking up into a vision of the throne room of God. God is on his throne. God had to come down. When God came down, the men went up as high as they could possibly go on earth, but God had to descend to see them. 
It says in Psalm chapter 113, Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and on earth? And that, that's a rhetorical question, right? Who is like the Lord our God? No one. There is no one. Only God. And so the question I want for us to consider this morning is really simple, and that is this. Where are you in relationship to the throne of God? Where are you in relationship to the throne of God? In other words, are you, are you raging against the throne because God has done something that you don't find acceptable in life? Are you running away from the throne? You don't want God's authority in your life. Are you trying to replace God on the throne with your family, your friends, your job, what you love the most, or maybe even yourself? Are you bending your knee before the throne? Are you allowing God to be in his place and you stay in your place? Because, you know, that's the only way that life really works properly. God's on the throne and we are bowing before him. In heaven, everything is aligned. The throne is central, God is on it, no one else, and all are worshiping. The problem of the book of Revelation is that earth, humanity, men and women, are not bowing before the throne. And that problem needs to be fixed. Read with me in chapter 5 and verse 1. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book and to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. First thing I want you to note is that um, what John sees in the right hand of the Father is not actually a book like this. It's a scroll. Right? It's, not a, it's not a book with pages like this. It's a long piece of parchment. It's really in the form of a contract. The terms of the contract would be written down on the parchment like this. Then it'd be rolled up, sealed, up, sealed closed, and then on the outside of that scroll would be a summary of the contract. Right? So when it was filed, someone could pull it out. They wouldn't have to open the whole scroll and read it. They could just see the summary on the outside. They'd know the contents. John is describing a scroll. And inside, there are words written, and then it's been rolled up and sealed internally. Once, sealed again twice, sealed again three times, sealed six times, finally closed up, sealed a seventh time with the summary on the outside. And what's the content of this particular scroll? Well, we know it. It's chapters 6 through 19, right? That's the content of the scroll. One commentator, David Ayun, wrote this. He said, the purpose for opening the scroll is not simply so that it can be read, but so that the eschatological or the end-time events can begin to take place. It's been described as the scroll of destiny. This is the destiny of earth. But what's important is not the actual events themselves. What's important is the purpose of these events. The purpose of these events is so that God can once again reclaim earth for himself. So that just as heaven is all worshiping God, so earth will all worship God Earth will be aligned with heaven and God is going to unfold this scroll and allow these events to transpire so that all of earth can once again come under his dominion. So others have called it the title deed of earth. The scroll is like earth's deed. And Adam and Eve were given this deed of trust, this title deed to earth, but they gave it away. 
Remember when they chose to exalt themselves and put themselves on the throne. When Satan said, you can be like God. You don't have to leave God on the throne. You can replace God. When they did that, they abdicated their rule and reign over earth. Remember Genesis chapter 1. God said to Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule and reign over everything that I have created. Rule in relationship to me, that is, bowing before my throne. Rule in right relationship to one another, in harmony with your wife and with your children and with all the offspring that will come from you. Rule in right relationship with me, but when Satan tempted Adam and Eve and they said, no, we'll be on the throne ourselves, they surrendered the title deed to earth and that is wrong. what is wrong with earth right now. The whole world, we're told, is under the power of the evil one. And what the book of Revelation is about, it's about God reclaiming earth for himself. The best way, in a sense, to to read the book of Revelation is to imagine it like this. Imagine that uh, it's a drama being played out on stage. Because remember, John didn't go into the future. right? When it says he's in the spirit, it doesn't mean uh, he somehow transcended time and space and went into the future. What's happening is he's given a vision of the future. So it's like a drama of what's going to transpire that's played out in front of him. So imagine you have two sides to the stage. On one side of the stage is heaven. Heaven is opened up before John. He sees scenes in heaven. He understands what's happening in heaven. And heaven will, will speak a word of what needs to transpire on earth. And the scene in heaven will go dark. And John will see what's transpiring now on earth. Seals broken, and that final seal opens up seven trumpets, and the final trumpet opens up seven bowls. He sees what's happening upon earth, but a a scene will open up, and then it will close, and he'll go back to heaven, and heaven will speak again, and then it'll speak a word back to earth, and, and one side will go dark, and the other side will go dark, and sometimes what's happening on earth is so dramatic that heaven just says, you know, we just need to pause for a moment and worship. Can we have an intermission, right? Let's just pause and worship. And so really the book of Revelation reads like this drama being played out for John. And in the drama, he comes first into the throne room of God, into the, a scene in heaven. And in the scene of heaven, God is seated and he's alone on his throne. He's surrounded by worshipers, but he's holding a scroll. And John knows what that scroll is. He can see what's written on the summary. It's the title deed to earth and God is holding it out, but no one can take it. There's no one in heaven who can take that scroll and put earth right again. Read with me again verse 2. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. It says literally, John wept and he wept and he wept. We don't know how long, but God let the agony of this moment sink into him. Earth is broken. Earth is decaying. Earth is out of line with the worship of God. And who will take it back for God? And God's holding out the scroll and he's waiting and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and there's a dramatic pause. 
John sees there's no one around. Not this strong angel with a loud voice. Not any of the 24 elders. Not the myriad and myriad, myriads of angels. Not any of these four living powerful creatures. None of them are worthy to take the scroll. To break its seals. To, to regain God's authority over earth for him. And so John weeps. And I began to weep. And I wept and I wept. I wept greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and to break its seven seals. There is one. John sees there is one. There is a a, a lion. He's from the tribe of Judah, consistent with the prophecy that from the tribe of Judah there would be a ruler. He would would rule with a rod of iron. He would be one who is strong. That's why he would be called a lion. And so John hears that word and he is expecting a lion to show up. He's expecting one to show up with great power and strength to tear God's enemies to shreds, to to reestablish God's rule and reign upon earth. And he turns and he looks and he doesn't see a lion. What does he see instead? Verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all of the earth. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. John is expecting a lion, but he gets a lamb instead. Why? That that just doesn't seem consistent. How is it that a lamb can reestablish God's authority on earth? We're told in verse 9, chapter 5. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals, because you were slain, because you purchased for God with your blood, men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. What was God's intention for earth? We're told in Psalm 115. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he's given to the sons of men. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule and reign in relationship to me. See, God could have put everything right on earth by sending the lion first, right? God could have wiped out all of his enemies and reestablished his authority over earth by wiping out all of his enemies. But if he had done that, if he had sent the lion first and wiped out all of his enemies, that would have included us. Right? Any one of you not born, alienated, and an enemy of God? No, we're, we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins. We're born alienated from God. We live consistent with that alienation. When we sin against God, we rebel against his authority. We don't let God be God and stay in our place in submission to God. And if God had sent a lion first, then all of God's rebellious creatures that were made in his image would have been wiped out. That would have included us. But God's plan was to give over earth to mankind so that we would rule and reign as the the one creatures made in the image of God, bearing his likeness, able to represent him and to radiate his glory, reflect his presence upon earth. And so God sent his son, his eternal son, to earth to take on human flesh so that he could live as a man, die for our sins, be raised up, and having died for our sins, that he could gather for God sons and daughters that could one day rule and reign and fulfill God's plan that he stated in Genesis chapter 1 all along, that we would be what? What's he say here, verse 10? You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, 
and they will reign upon the earth. See, the unfaithfulness of mankind, our unfaithfulness, never changes God's plan. And so what that means for us, church, is our calling is to be a foretaste of heaven. Right? As, as we individually bend the knee before the throne of God, we, we submit our lives to God, we live with God being God and we are his creatures to serve him. And we live in harmony with one another because we find unity in our mutual submission to the authority of God in our lives. We, we, we experience a unity that is known as the same unity between Father, Son, and Spirit as Jesus said in John chapter 17. We live very differently. Yeah, we hurt one another once in a while, but we forgive, we reconcile. We sacrifice for the needs of one another. We sacrifice for the needs of the community. We speak words of truth. We demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ. We're a foretaste. We're a foreshadowing of heaven. That's what the church is designed to be. In other words, we're forgiven of our sins, not just so that we can have eternal life someday, but so that we can live so very differently now and reflect God now as light in a very dark world. Right? The kingdom is not yet, and don't expect that it will be now. Don't live for now. But live differently in the now because you know that God will restore his kingdom to earth someday. In the meantime, what do we do as believers in Jesus Christ? What is our responsibility? Read with me chapter 5 and verse 8. Revelation chapter 5 verse 8. When the Lamb had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and a golden bowl, golden bowls that were full of incense. The incense... That's the prayers of the saints. Isn't that a beautiful image? David uses the same image, excuse me, in Psalm 141, verse 2. He says, May my prayer be counted as incense before you. When I lift up my hands, may that also be like the evening offering. Okay, like a sweet aroma, God, that comes before you. When I come home sometimes, my wife will have a, a, a candle lit, and I walk in her house. And that aroma has associations for me. And it reminds me that I'm home. There's, there's something very powerful about smell. Or I'll walk in and I'll smell her perfume. I have great associations. I walk in and I'll smell my favorite meal. <laughs> great associations. I'm home. Hey, I'm home. When the saints prayer, pray, it's like a, a sweet aroma going up before God. God says, I have, I have sweet associations with your prayer. But specifically, what are the prayers of the saints that God says, yes, that's what I want to hear? Yes. My people are aligned with me and my will. We're told, Revelation chapter 22, we read it last week. Jesus, the one who testifies to all of these things, he says this, yes, I am coming quickly. And then John prays, and he starts with the amen, and then he prays. He says, amen, yes, Lord, come quickly. Hey, that's the prayer that God longs to hear, that we are aligning ourselves with the will of God. Yes, Lord, amen, come quickly. I can put it in other words for you. It's actually the prayer that has been prayed by more Christians in more nations for more generations than any other prayer. It's the single most often quoted prayer by Christians but Christians often pray it and they don't really realize what they're praying because they've prayed it so often. They don't realize the significance of this prayer. Do you know what the prayer is? Anybody? It goes like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you get it? See how those all fit together? 
Our Father, who art in heaven, always enthroned. God, you're always on your throne. May your name, that is your character, your attributes, and your acts, all that you have done, may it be hallowed or holy or set apart. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. May your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. In heaven, what's happening? The throne is central. The throne is the focal point. Everyone is worshiping heaven. Everyone is bowing down before the throne of God. Everything is in in proper alignment to the throne of God in heaven. And the prayer that God always answers, the prayer that God wants to hear is, God, would you bring that same thing to earth? Start in my life. Start in my life. God, you be on your throne and I will be at your feet. And then from this place, God, allow me to begin to give a, a foretaste of the kingdom of God to those around me. God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. First night, right now, as I wait, God, through my life, but someday I long for Jesus to come quickly. Lord, align everything in my life with your throne. So what is the application for us this morning? Really simple. I want you to think about one thing. It's this. Where are you in relationship to the throne of God? Are you, are you raging against the throne still? Something happened that God didn't explain to you and you're angry about it and you just won't let it go. So God, you didn't have the right to do that. Will you bend your knee and say, God, perhaps you, you do know better since you know all things. Are you running away from the throne? Maybe God's calling you back to his throne for the first time. He's saying, come back and simply believe in my son Jesus. Lamb of God slain for you to take away the debt of your sins. Or maybe you're trying to put anything and everything up onto the throne of God. You're trying to replace God with things that you think will satisfy your soul. And God's saying, no, remove those things and allow me to be God and you bend the knee. As we close, I'd like for us to just take a few moments silently. Let's ask God's Spirit to speak. Life never works properly. Things just don't line up for us until we bend the knee before the throne of God. And it is so tempting for us to allow all sorts of different things to crowd in. Let's listen to the voice of the Spirit for just a moment and let Him bring conviction. Heavenly Father, we want to want more of You. We want to see You more clearly. We want to love You so much more deeply so that the foolish things of the world don't take your place in our heart. Father, stir up within us a a fresh longing for more. And Father, through your Spirit, bring conviction whether there are things great or small, things that have come upon us quickly and suddenly or, or slowly we have allowed things to leak into our lives that are displacing you Father, bring conviction through your spirit. Let us confess and receive comfort. Father, change us into men and women who are so fully and completely devoted to worshiping you that others get a foretaste of your kingdom through us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Next week, Revelation chapter 19, if you want to read ahead, uh, that's what we'll be into. We'll talk about that second coming when Jesus returns to the earth. God bless you. Have a great day.